we're here to provide better funding options and better investing options. I mean, I still, 11, 12 years in, when I'm introduced somewhere or meet people and, you know, having found a crowdfunding platform, I wince ever so slightly. It's not that I don't like crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding is great, and I think it, the term is useful, but it's a very incomplete term, but one that we've never really succeeded in in being able to, to displace. Hi, I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We bring you insights from the UK's top entrepreneurs that you won't find anywhere else. In this episode, I'm speaking to the Cedars co-founder and executive chairman, Jeff Lynn, as well as the Cedars CEO, Jeff Kaliski, who the original Jeff recruited to replace him as CEO when he moved to chair. You might go so far as calling this show Double Jeffardy. Thank you. Cedars is a UK-based crowdfunding platform which has experienced huge growth since its founding in 2012, with over a billion pounds being invested via 1,300 deals. Until very recently, in a shock move to the industry, and after years of intense competition, Cedars was in the process of merging with its closest rival, Crowdcube. However, the deal was just blocked by the competition watchdog, the CMA. Crowdcube and the merger will come up a few times in this conversation, but first, I wanted to know why and how both of these New York-based Americans found themselves in London. First up, Cedars chairman Jeff Lynn, then CEO Jeff Kaliski. We each wound up here maybe for very slightly different reasons. Although, although Jeff, I like, didn't you actually, in an entrepreneurial sort of spirit, show up and crash on a friend's couch and then sort of uh, land something? Land it was, all there's there. a few decisions in my life which was entirely heart-driven and, and not of the mind. And, that, and Jeff, you're absolutely right. That was one of them. I was traveling around Europe with a friend of mine, and he was in London working for Canadian Paribank of Commerce during the sort of, you know, in banking during the liar's poker years where it was sort of a lot of money was trading hands. And I said, so if I came to London, can I sleep on your floor? He's like, sure. I went home, said, mom, dad, I'm moving to London. They said, we'll miss you, but we think it's a great opportunity. I packed my bags, turned up at Heathrow, and it was only literally standing just outside the gate at Heathrow as my friend went to go pick up his car and pick me up that I thought, what actually am I doing here? (laughs) What have I I done? I don't even know the language. (laughs) And I I, I grew up in love with Monty Python and Blackadder. So I was, I felt I was well-equipped. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. So thank you. And um, Jeff Lynn, in the meantime, what brought you to the wonderful world of Cedars? Yeah, so I started my career as, as a corporate lawyer, uh, started practicing in New York, got a chance to come to my firm's London office. I had spent some time over in the side of the world before and really liked it for a whole host of reasons, so took the firm up on it and you know, got to the point where I knew this wasn't what I wanted to do for my career. I wasn't that keen on spending 35 years doing deals for other people. I wanted to go off and try to do something for myself, but I had no idea what. Um, and I had no idea how. And so so I, I did the thing that, you know, often people who don't know what they want to do or how to do it do, which is I went off to do an MBA. And I got very lucky in the sense that my MBA class started uh, two weeks after Lehman Brothers failed, you know, so starting in October of 2008. Um, and any prospect of opportunity cost or being drawn to the the sort of you know big money world of of, of banking or or some other type of job that was not about to become a distraction. But I also got lucky in the sense that I met my now very good friend and co-founder Carlos Silva, who was on my course as well, Portuguese chap, came from a an engineering and software security background, and he was the one who had the idea. And he said he had looked at what was going on in the early days of peer to peer lending, what was going on in the early days of micro lending. Um, and said, you know, what if we tried to do this for equity? But, you know, what would be the opportunity to try to take an online platform and do it for startups and equity? And, and, and that was the sort of initial question posed. And, you know, we had a business plan course where literally our job was to come up with a business plan and submit it for a grade. And so we used that opportunity to hash out the ideas and start to think about, you know, well, you know, does this apply in the equity world? Where's the demand? And started to see that fundamentally – you know, the same thing we see to this day existed, which was a lot of people who want to invest in new, growing, exciting businesses, a lot of great potential entrepreneurs out there who you know have a limited number of options for capital uh, or have lots of options but want better options, and the opportunity to use this 
interwebs thingy uh, to bring them all together. Um, and and we started hashing out the idea, and it was one day when Carlos and I sat down and said, "This thing, this works. Let's do it." And it went from there. It looks like quite a difficult business to build a scrappy MVP for. So, what did version one look like? I mean, that you know, it just at about that time was when Eric Reese's lean startup had had come out, and and I said at the time as we started working on it that if if Eric had a, a look into what we were doing, he'd have an apoplectic fit. You weren't building a Toyota factory, sadly. Exactly the opposite. I mean, absolutely impossible to iterate. And the reality is, I mean, I'll, I'll, there's a little bit of extra color to this, but the reality is that we spent from 2009 to 2012 having to build a clunky thing, bring it to the regulator, because this was something where we had to get regulatory approval before we could even go to market, you know, bring it to the regulator, get the regulator to sign off on it, and then boom, pull up the curtain and see what people thought. And, you know, the only sort of slight modification there is we did try to do sort of, you know, what we kind of called alpha testing, where we would have mock mock campaigns and mock flow, user flows and everything. And, you know, it was not unhelpful, but when people are, you know, not, there's nothing quite like seeing people really interact with your product or service versus doing so in a simulated environment. And so the reality is when we launched in 2012, there was a lot of stuff that we gotten wrong. And that we we probably spent our our dev team those first three, four, five months after launch was just fixing stuff that we had the opportunity to do a, a sort of live beta of, I'm sure we would have picked up earlier on. And, you know, that that didn't kill us in the process was good luck. Um, we People stuck around enough. But yeah, no, it's a very, very, very hard business to do in the kind of lean, iterative way that, you know, one thinks of building a, a tech business today. And, and that was certainly a frustration, but also an opportunity. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I've observed just in general, there are lots of different complications that come from building different types of businesses. And I would imagine that your legal background came in exceptionally valuable in building a business like this. It's an exceptionally complicated subject and there's so many things that go into it and 99% of them are actually just legal hurdles. So I can imagine that that might have felt like, and I'd love to know your perspective on all of this, but I can imagine that would have felt like getting off the mark a bit slower for the first period that could be quite frustrating, but actually is a long-term advantage. Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge amount in, in what you've just said. Legal is part of the product. In some businesses, it's a cost center that sort of sits off and is something just completely independent and a kind of health metric for the business, so to speak. Here, we have there's some of that too, but understanding how to be creative with the law and with regulation, under, getting under the skin of what a regulation is intended to do and being able to find ways to work with it. Those, frankly, were always the things I was better at as a lawyer. I was never a very very good at being the sort of strict textbook, no, you can do this, no, you can't do that. But if you wanted a creative interpretation or you wanted some clever way of approach, you know, a new way of approaching law, that was the stuff that I liked and was good at. And that's been a key part of, of our business and, and the value we brought. And so, I look, I, I'm very proud of many things, particularly early on in building out the model that we did. And, and I think a lot of the work that I did together with the others you know, involved at that time have really in many ways set the standard for equity crowdfunding globally in terms of just the detailed plumbing of how it works. So that was absolutely right. But then at the same time, you know, people are often suspicious when lawyers begin businesses and, you know, that they don't know anything about the commercial side. And I said, no, 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 don't worry about that with me. I get it. I get it. I'm not going to be one of these boring, stiff lawyers that that is sort of anti-marketing and doesn't let you say anything. Like, we're absolutely like, you know, this is a commercial deal, et cetera, et cetera. And I meant it. And I was. For a lawyer, I think I was somewhat progressive on marketing. But that was still for a lawyer. It wasn't part of our DNA. It wasn't part of my DNA. It wasn't part of Carlos's. Both Carlos and I proved very good at hiring in our own image. So we hired, you know, people who did some really great work on a lot of areas of the business. But it took us quite some time to really land the marketing side of things, much as I think, you know, we continue to recognize that Crowdcube was ahead of us in that in a lot of regards in, in early years. It was just a, a challenge. And, and I think, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think you could probably have 
essentially the flip side conversation with Darren and Luke to say that, you know, they did their best to sort of backfill a lot of the legal stuff, but they leaned into what they knew and then, and then have, I think worked to build in, in some of the legal stuff since, uh, since then. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I do think both businesses have come a heck of a lot closer to each other on both fronts in recent years. And that was, you know, we'll talk more about this later, I suppose, but that was part of why a merger that couldn't have been contemplated in, say, 2013 or 2014, you know, did become a possibility now. But, you know, it is very, I think it is interesting and important to understand the extent to which the DNA of the founders, to some degree, can have long-lasting impacts on the business. And I think that was true for us. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, it does get lost sometimes, uh, you know, in the narrative, which is, A, it's exceptionally hard as a founder to, I mean, the best founders will try their best and more commonly second or third time founders will try their best to sort of remove their DNA entirely from the situation because that's the best thing you could do. But it is impossibly difficult. At the end of the day, like how you start a business and the way that you think about solving problems in your entrepreneurial mindset, you know, that is ultimately what's going to shape at least the early days until it comes time to be really challenged about whether that's working or not. And I think you can't do all the things, right? So picking the challenge at where you define your expertise is such an important way in which to get market share as well. And let's not forget, you know, we'll come on to, to the failed merger, but in the end, the reason why the merger failed is because of the so-called competition, um, like disadvantage for the rest of the market. Well, why is that? Broadly speaking, you could argue that's because each of you did one of your things so exceptionally well, better than the other for so long, and then brought the other bit up. And I would imagine a lot of the other competitors were trying to do both simultaneously at the same time and not doing a good enough job of one side or the other, which then leaves a smaller pool of other competitors in the market. And that becomes quite difficult too. So there's a clear and distinct feeling of a first and second uh, type player in the market. But we'll come on to that. And I say this is, you know, this is literally just an observation as a consumer. Well, I do, I, I will say, and we'll get, we will get to this more, but, but one place where we have been woefully inadequate, both us and I think Crowdcube, is in expressing what the category really is and what we, what we see ourselves as doing. We allowed ourselves, partially out of convenience, partially out of lack of creativity, to get sort of pigeonholed into this concept of crowdfunding as if it was some distinct and brand new thing. Whereas, you know, we always, you know, as I described, I mean, we said, look, we're, we're here to provide better funding options and better investing options in this broader world. And so again, you know, we can get into the details of that and, and how that impacted, I think the review, but even more generally, I mean, I still 11, 12 years in when I'm introduced somewhere or meet people and, you know, as people talk about me as, you know, having crowded a crowdfunding platform, I winks ever so slightly. It's not that I don't like crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding is great. And I think it, the term is useful, but it's a very incomplete term, but one that we've never really succeeded in, in, in being able to, to displace. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see, like, broadly speaking, you know, for you, you feel you are yet another player in the broad funding options, in which case, how could it be uncompetitive? But like I say, let's not jump the gun. I do have one more question before we uh, before we actually step into my next set of questions. What was the biggest mistake that you made in the early days of, of running Cedars? That's one of those lists that's very hard to narrow down. You know, loads and loads and loads of mistakes. And I think, you know, one, and, and I'll, I'll turn, before answering the question, I'll, I'll turn it into a little bit of self-praise to say that one thing I, I did have the right disposition for was being willing to throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what stuck. Um, and a lot didn't stick. Um, and we just sort of kept on, kept on going. But I think I was too focused on the sort of big opportunity, the big scaling opportunity, uh, and doing things that could really deliver massive step change, that I often missed some of the low-hanging fruit that would have driven stronger revenue growth and the things that come from it in the short term. And and it may sound like that's, you know, it may sound like, well, that's great. You should focus on the really big stuff. But the reality is that we could have had, we would have had more opportunities to pursue some of the moonshots I was interested in, to pursue many of the things that I, you know, I looked at and, and we didn't do. 
if we had had stronger fundamentals along the way. I think, you know, we were so busy sort of scraping by and growing the fundamentals that we didn't often, you know, have the freedom financially and otherwise to do some of these things that I was spending a bit of time on. And so I, I think that, you know, certainly as I look back, what would I have done it over, done over again? You know, I, I, or what would I have done differently if I had to do it over again? It would have been about looking to some degree at the lower hanging fruit. And I think what we talk about a lot internally and, and the thing that we give Crowdcube full credit for, for recognizing uh, before we did, was just how valuable it could be. It would be to go after to what we kind of call marquee deals, marquee campaigns, businesses that had significant brand recognition and that could in turn drive a lot of investment activity. You know, we, we were here often thinking about fund products and international and a lot of sort of, you know, really sort of big ticket stuff. And, you know, Crowdcube got probably 18 months to two years before we did that, you know, if you could get a business that had a strong customer base that wanted to invest, you A, had massive free user acquisition effectively, and B, you know, all the little startups, all the little guys who, who don't have that, they are attracted by the prospect of being in the same place as the bigger ones. And so we went for a period where they had done some really high profile raises and we had done almost none. And then, you know, when we got Revolut in 2017, things started to change and then we really did start to compete effectively on that front. But we were a few years behind there and I think that's something I would definitely done differently and, and is very much one of these things where I look back and I say, well, this was kind of staring us in the face. Why was I, you know, so worried about how crowdfunding was about to develop in Latin America when, you know, we could have just looked for, you know, we were sitting in the middle of shortage. Like we could have just threw stones and found some businesses that would have added a huge amount of value to us. Next up, we learn about how to find a new CEO and integrate them into a close-knit founder-led company. See you after this quick break. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner, Deloitte. And there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. 
You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So how many um, mistakes and things did you not understand until you realized what a terrible CEO you are and you must need a Jeff K? Uh, uh, uh. It actually happened pretty quickly in the sense that we, so we started work on business in 2009, long pre-launch period, launched in 2012. And, and I, I, you know, I never thought of myself as a business operator. I mean, I remember Carlos and I, talking, you know, in earliest days when we were still in business school about how someday we need, you know, we, we need to find our Eric Schmidt so that we can be Sergey and Larry, you know, we, so we, we, we there, that, there was always an element of that on our minds. But until we raised our Series A, which it was in 2015, it was one of these things where even if I didn't necessarily think I knew what I was doing, I didn't think anybody else was going to know what they were doing either. We were still in such an experimental, fine product market fit, try to just figure out how this whole space works. And I think, and I was, you know, as, as well placed to do that as any. And then pretty soon after we raised our series A, it was a really, it was a really exciting round for us. It was a lot of money at the time. There was a lot of things it opened up a lot of doors. Um, and we started scaling the team and scaling operations. And I very quickly said, wait a minute, I, I still don't know what I'm doing here. I might not have known all along, but I still, I still don't know. But now we're starting to do things that other people do know how to do. Now we're starting to think about everything from the purely operational HR, budgeting, et cetera, uh, to the more formal strategic of, okay, we've got this money in the bank. What's the most efficient way to use it? And I say, you know, it doesn't seem to make, you know, it's fun to learn and I want to keep learning and I don't particularly want to go anywhere, but I also don't think it makes sense from a shareholder value perspective. And I take shareholder value very seriously, both because I feel very indebted to the people who backed us from the very beginning um, and because it's my own you know, money tied up in the business. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I say it doesn't make sense for me to keep just learning on the job if we could find somebody who has done this before in some capacity, who has more of a disposition to running a scaling business and who can bring in the experiences of, of other businesses, of other places to do this effectively. And so I, I went to our board, I guess, you know, we raised Series A in summer of 2015. I went to the board maybe six, nine months later and said, look, I would very much like to hire a CEO and here's how and here's why. And while I can't say definitively whether that's the right thing for any founder to do at any given time, I, mean, I think it's different for everybody. It worked out very, very well for me for a few reasons. One was that by shaping the process, I was able to get the person I wanted. You know, one one of our board members at the time, his his actual words to me were, I think it's a great idea for you to hire uh, a new CEO. Just don't get the wrong one. But you ignored that advice and got Jeff anyway. Exactly. <laughs> it meant that I was able to go run a search, you know, to try to find somebody who bought into the vision, you know, I, you know, we weren't trying to pivot the business 180 degrees. We were trying to find somebody who could take what we had built and really build on it. If we'd gone from zero to one, this was the person to take it from one to a hundred. So somebody with you know a different skill set than mine, different you know disposition, different you know strengths, but also somebody who you know bought into the vision and who um, saw the world and saw the opportunity along similar lines to how I did. And so that was good. And, you know, we ran a whole process. It took, you know, in the end from sort of beginning outreach to uh, hiring, it took about a year. And so, you know, and we obviously got exactly the person uh, that we wanted out of, out, of, out of some good luck and good timing. And then, you know, look, the other thing that worked out well for me there was, you know, as, I, as I've often said about this, is that if I was right, if my observations about my strengths and, and weaknesses were right, then at some point the board would have noticed too. And I think at the point that the board comes and says to the founder, it's time to go, there isn't much choice other than to really go. But by of doing it my way, 
was, you know, I said to the board at the time, I was like, I'd like to stay. And I, I've got an idea for how to shape a role. Like, I, I think I can chair the board. I, you know, there's some legal and technical stuff there that I know how to do. But also, there are a number of aspects of this business that take time and energy and somebody from a se senior level, but that doesn't necessarily need to be the CEO. And these are the things that I think I can be good at. And I was given the opportunity to do that and, and, and still am doing it and as, as exec chairman. And uh, have really, really liked that opportunity. It's really been been fantastic. So it, it worked out well for the business, but it also, I think, worked out well well for me. So Jeff Kay, this is your moment to shine. We've been speaking about you in the third person. You've been sitting in the background listening. I guess the first question that springs to mind, what's it like working for a tyrant? <laughs> I'm used to it. It's not my first rodeo. <laughs> So just give us some, some background then. So when you were first approached as a potential candidate for a crowdfunding platform, uh, wince or not at the time on the term, I'm sure it was used at the time in the, in the hiring for, uh, spree anyway, what were your initial impressions and what other kind of stuff were you, were you considering for your career? So I was looking at, at a few different things, principally in in tech and, and SaaS businesses, I suppose. I've been fortunate in having been in both B2B and B2C tech enterprises. And I'd already had a, I suppose, a, a founder partnership um, when I stepped into Multimap in 2000. The founder, Sean Phelan, very strong technology person, leader. And it was really the, a partnership to help commercialize and bring the business to into reality. And actually, I, I mean, I love that experience. It's not without its bumps, but it was something which I really enjoyed in the end, being part of a team where the energy of the founder is still present, is in all of the people who have been recruited, the passion and the purpose and the mission is still is in the business in a very real sense. And so I was absolutely open to either a growth story where the founder was was there and, and and it was about taking the business into its next chapter, you know, from having done zero to one, it's now kind of one to a hundred. Or I had been looking at a couple of others which were almost company had hit hit a wall and and now needed to be repaired before its next journey, which was what I had just done in in Pixel. It was replacing a CEO and and it was a turnaround before a sort of digital transformation, which is a, another story in itself, where three months after I arrived, I was told we were going to run out of cash. A lovely experience. Sounds like a normal startup, mate. <laughs> yeah. Other than we had about you know, 500 employees um, <laughs> and, it was a, and it was a 50 million turnover business. So I did wonder why the investor weren't aware of this before I turned up. But I think my first reaction when I looked at the brief around Cedars was, but surely you want a finance person. Like you want somebody who's been in financial services, fintech, et cetera. That's not me. It's kind of my first reaction and um, to the response was, no, actually, I want somebody who doesn't have all of the assumptions and dogma that's kind of baked into how it should be. You know, want somebody who can approach this with, you know, a blank sheet of paper and, and write the rules. It made complete sense to me. And then I met with Jeff shortly after and immediately we got along. I think the thing that grabbed me, which is something that I saw with Sean Phelan, was a complete connectedness to the why in terms of the underlying architecture for what he had built. Um, and by architecture, I don't necessarily mean the software architecture, because obviously Jeff you know, wouldn't have designed the software architecture of the business, but the thinking behind how do you, I mean, fundamentally, this is a legal product. This is a you know a legal contract between an investor and the business. How do you scale that? We're not talking about doing five of these a year. We're not talking about doing 50 of these a year. We're potentially talking about doing 500, 5,000. What do you need to scale this? And so a, a lot of that thinking went in at the start, which was which was fundamentally important. And I saw both the the clarity of thought behind that, and then I could get behind the all right. So now this is about operationalizing this and bringing out the the commercial elements and making the team a high-performing team. And everybody had met, you know, were very strong, talented people who believed in the business, were completely connected to the mission. And it was very much at that point about, you know, getting the most from a team of people who had the underlying ingredients of success and, and actually making them work as a team. So that sounds like quite an exciting brief, really, to start off with. 
I guess the question is, how do you strike the right balance between making an impact and not ruffling too many feathers as soon as you come in, right? Because that's got to create a sense of uncertainty, which is, you know, we were all hired by uh, by Jeff Lynn. We know the culture here. We know how things are operating. We've just worked fucking hard to take our business from uh, no market awareness or anything to a Series A. And now there's an external guy that's being brought in specifically because he doesn't know about how hard the work that we've put in to get us to this stage for the next stage. So this is assuming that it's like any normal business and people might have behaved like they were threatened. Yeah, very much. Um, I was fortunate in, in having had some of those previous experiences because I mean, I think you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of those sentiments were present. My approach was very much in some ways kind of took three parts. Step one was very much about building trust. Building trust with Jeff, clearly here is something which he's gone through along with the team, you know, fields of fire to get to this point. There's a lot that has to happen in terms of starting to build trust to, to be able to take uh, decisions, some of which might be difficult. Part of that involves a lot of communication. One of the things that, you know, I did early on is, you know, I said, Jeff, you know, Let's get together for coffee, like almost before the workday starts, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. So I think we kind of, we made a fix coffee on um, on White Cross, our home, uh, I think Tuesdays and Thursdays, which was just a general talk about what was happening in the business, what was I seeing, and some things where it didn't necessarily need Jeff to make a decision on something, but I wanted to share what I was seeing and how I was thinking about it. And then Jeff would add color to it. And this was this was doing two things. What this was doing was partly, I was trying to accelerate my own learning because by exposing my thinking, he could then comment on it rather than something that happens after the effect. The other thing is the chemistry has to work in this situation. I mean, at one level, if there's distrust, at some point, it just becomes harder and harder, and the founder can easily step in and start to send conflicting signals to the team. And that's probably difficult in any business. And I would say that two things happened, I think, probably mostly because of maybe who we are and who Jeff is as a, as a person, but partly, I think, because of the time taken to build the trust was it very much was collaborative. The chemistry worked well. I probably accelerated into the role much faster due to the, the strength of the relationship I built with Jeff than I, than I expected to. And he was good to his word. So from the very beginning, people would come to him as you'd expect. Employees walk up to the founder and say, what do you think of this? I'd like to do the following. And Jeff would absolutely give his opinion. And then he would say, but it's JK's decision. And so everybody eventually knew that if you wanted, you had to come to me, but absolutely, I would at times push people to Jeff to sort of add historical color on something or get a view because I knew he'd, we, he and I had already discussed it. But that that extra energy around communication and trust building was essential in in the foundation of addressing the concern that you, you, you rightfully identified. And have there been any, um, any disputes or any areas where you guys really disagreed? And, uh, and if there were, were there any frameworks or anything that you used to learn from those moments? We disagree in one-on-one sort of discussions on specific things um, all the time. And that's part of, I think, what makes it work well. And I think the flip side to much of what Jeff just said was that because I felt and he made me feel that I had absolute freedom to sit down with him privately and tell him where I disagreed and try to persuade him otherwise, you know, to do things differently and give my thoughts, you know, unedited. And I knew he was listening and often would change his mind. And when he didn't change his mind, it was as a result, you know, it was clear that he had given it real thought. The fact that I knew that I was being heard and and genuinely listened to made it a heck of a lot easier for me then to sort of go out to the rest of the company, the rest of the world and say, no, it's, it's JK's call. I know internally I've said my piece, but you know, we, we, you need leadership and, and you have to defer to it. So lots of times, you know, lots of times where we went into conversations disagreeing, a handful where we came out, usually we come to uh, an agreement or consensus, a handful where we come out, but a small enough number and usually over things that tend to resolve themselves anyway, that, you know, it hasn't needed much more of a formal solution. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think I think the two things, one would be that 
in the beginning, I might get an email from Jeff, which would express disagreement about a thing. And then he would quite often say, you know, but happy to talk about it. And I didn't know in the beginning whether that was basically, you know, like, I'm not really going to change my mind. But if you, if you want to talk about it, we can. And then you realize he had nothing to do other than talk about these things and was waiting for you to call him. <laughs> but then by engaging the subject, we talk about it. Actually, I realized, no, no, those were genuine words. And, you know, the, you know, actions and words married up. And so there were, there are a number of times where I have had concerns about engaging the topic because I know there'd be disagreement. But the thing is, I know every time we will end up with a better product. We will wrestle through that tension. You know, had it not been that way, then I would have realized there would have been a problem in my being effective in the role. And and that would have been part of the chemistry test of the first sort of six to 12 months. But but we did. Um, When we disagree, you know, if it's, for example, a discussion we're going to have in a board, we will both know going in, this is a topic we both disagree on. And there'll be a almost in the board, we will each either say, this is something we disagree on and looking for the board's view. The clear foundation is trust, which, which made that possible. So the two Jeffs are together at the helm. And the next thing in their sights is a merger with competitors, Crowdcube. In the end, it was anything but smooth sailing. We'll be back in a mo. So obviously it was in the last year that you finally decided that perhaps the fierce competition that you'd had with your major rival being Crowdcube was worthy of a discussion of partnership to see how you guys could combine forces rather than dividing and conquering and make a really great meaningful business together. So my main questions to you around this, I mean, there's so many, but let's just start with How do you approach your major competitor to discuss this? Who asked who and how slowly did those conversations evolve? Well, I reached out to Darren to have lunch in November or December of 2016. And that's four and a half years ago. And the conversations started from there and evolved and started and stopped and were on and off really until we signed the deal almost almost four years. And I think that reflects a couple of things. You know, you are right that to the sort of consumer's eye and to a large degree, I think in the press, there's that we are very competitive with with each other. But getting back to a point I alluded to earlier and, and can probably go into more deeply now. Competition and views of sort of competitive dynamics occur at at different levels. In the sort of day-to-day of getting deals onto the platform, uh, encouraging businesses to come list with us, uh, do campaigns with us, often these being businesses that have already decided that they are interested in crowdfunding, interested in what it offers. They're UK businesses. They already, you know, passed through a number of sort of external and in, internal hurdles. Then, you know, the final decision is, okay, is it Cedars or is it Crowdcube? And at that point, we're fighting each other very hard. But that's the last part of a very long funding journey for many people, for many businesses. And it's the bottom part of a very big funnel in the broader sort of startup funding market. And I think, you know, I mean, Darren and I and Luke and, you know, with Carlos and, and, and our senior teams to some degree have known each other since the very earliest days. We'd see each other at conferences and certainly early on we weren't super warm toward each other, but we acknowledged each other and we came together to form the UK Crowdfunding Association and, and a few other things. And, and as time went by, you know, we were talking much more if sort of on at the street level, so to speak, it was all, you know, it was all fists. We were talking much more about the industry and, and growing the role of online finance, online investment, both in the UK and internationally. And certainly, you know, Darren, very much like me, was, you know, really interested not in crowdfunding sort of just as a thing. I think as a term, he doesn't wince at it the same way I do. And I think, he's, you know, in many ways, many ways, you know, less, less ambivalent there. But, you know, he, he, you know, he was as interested, I think, as I was or as any of us were 
in the opportunity to really provide a credible long-term alternative to venture capital, to private equity, to angel groups, and to others that we could do this. You know, and it's it's an age-old story of somebody coming in, or in this case, two different players coming in, each to an established, fairly boring, fairly opaque industry, and trying to use you know technological solutions to make it much more compelling. So. While at one level, yeah, sure, we, we were competing with each other and we wanted to win deals off each other and jive at each other. The other level, you know, we were very interested always in the opportunity to expand the pie, you know, rather than just uh, divide it up. So all that goes to, to the point that when Darren and I had lunch at the end of 2016, and I, you know, I was the one who broached it. I said, look, you know, we, we both just raised some money. We both, you know, kept sort of, you know, going back and forth. I said, what if we take our own rivalry off the table and talk about what could we possibly do together? And I, you know, Darren's a very cool character to begin with. And I don't even, I think if that had been a shock to him, you know, he might not have let it on, but I don't think it was a shock to him. I think he felt like, yeah, no, that's a great idea. And, you know, there's a lot that's very hard about doing M&A. There's a lot about bringing two companies you know, that do sort of fight so closely, but also have a lot of similarity together that's tough. And so it was four years before all the stars were able to align that we both really felt that this was the deal to do. But the principle of it was, you know, I think welcomed by us, almost obvious to us from, you know, really from quite some time ago. Not a lot of these merger deals, uh, realistically, fall apart at the end of the day because of the regulator. And I would imagine by that point, as I understand it, by that point, you've basically both had to show all of your cards completely transparently, literally to the nth degree. Um, tell me if I'm wrong. I've never spoken to someone that's gone through this process. I'd love to know uh, from either one of you if that assumption is right, how naked that makes you feel, how uncomfortable that makes you feel, and what that does to a company's psychology after the fact when you have to go back out of that deal into the market and then competing against someone when you both know everything about each other. Yeah, you're right. You do show a lot to each other. Now, now this, this is a situation where we, um, although we felt very strongly and feel very strongly, that the competition analysis here really is only challenging at a superficial level and that when you really get into the business and when you really look at the data and you look, as I say, at the fact that, you know, this choice between Cedars and Crowdcube is just the last choice in a long sort of stream of, of, of choices that are being made by a business looking for funding. You know, we didn't fundamentally think there was a real competition issue here because together, you know, we're four percent of the market or something when you when when you look at all the people that we're actually competing against. But we did know that on the surface it would raise eyebrows and we did know that it was something that the CMA would want to dig into and we thought they'd come to a different conclusion and you know, I can expound expound for hours on on where we think they got it wrong. But knowing that meant that we put in place certain guardrails just by law that we were required to about the level of confidential information we shared. So we did share a lot, and there was a lot of, of retrospective, if not necessarily prospective, information uh, that we shared as part of our due diligence processes. But it certainly, um, you know, it wasn't as much as it might have been. The other thing I'd say is there weren't a huge amount of massive surprises, I think, in that information because we are both, in the scheme of things, really quite transparent platforms. I mean, you you know, you 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 can tell. I mean, we put all of our business, all of our businesses, they are on a site to see. You see what deals we funded. You see what. But look, I mean, I think there's no question. You know, as we unwound the deal, I mean, there was, you know, after after it was clear the CMA was going to block it, you know, and we were just sort of, you know, having a couple last phone calls with them to sort of discuss the process. There was this real awkwardness, certainly, of, oh, I guess we're we're back to the streets again after all this time, kind of in 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 bed together. I don't know, Jeff, if, if you want to say anything about how you think about that. There is a degree of of confidential information that was shared in order to get to the point of. Is there a deal to do here and get people comfortable? But there were there were certain guardrails, so I guess not too much. But I think to a certain extent, I've always been a believer in ultimately it's about your ability to execute, which makes the difference between success and failure rather than the idea or knowing something. I was always amused at how much energy seems to go into, you know, a VC or or investors interrogation of your platform when they say, have you patented that? Or do you have IP protection on that? And look, I get it. I understand. But, but generally, 
the winner is the person who actually makes use of it, not just the existence of, of, of a protection. Yes, of course, if, if we were a drug manufacturer, then, then perhaps the patent has somewhat more role to play. But I really count on the fact that it's going to come down to uh, quality of execution in the end. I mean, I guess partly I'm fairly confident in, in our strategy and, and sort of the high order thinking, but I know that's not going to get us there. It's going to be the execution. And so to a certain extent, yeah, there are probably things that they've seen about us and we've seen about them, which gives us clues. But in the end, it's going to be about the team's ability to turn that into actions on the ground that matter. And so to a certain extent, I don't know that any leverage or advantage that we, either of us may have gained matters more than, um, than ultimately, in our case, my ability to galvanize the troops to, to execute. What do you think about the decision itself? What do you think it says about the UK startup ecosystem? And this is almost like case law now, as has happened. So therefore, this is a ruling that would define a category. Well, maybe in the UK, and certainly, you know, unless it's it's changed over time. But look, I think it's a, I think it sends a very problematic message. I mean, there are a couple of things to note here. So what, one is about deal size. You know, there is no other developed country in the world, bar possibly Australia, where this deal would even have needed to be notified to competition regulators based on its size. Everywhere else, not just huge markets like the EU and the US. But markets like South Africa, markets like the Republic of Ireland, markets like Japan, many others, everybody has a threshold uh, in terms of deal size or, or revenues of the companies or, or something else. And the truth is that, you know, we're two quite small companies. We, you know, I'm thrilled of the impact that we've had and I'm proud of everything we've done. I'm not here to talk us down in any way, shape or form. But the, you know, the hard fact is that in any other country, two companies that were still at our size, that were trying to come together to build something bigger, would have, nobody would have even batted an eye. So you've got, and that's not a CMA decision, that is a, that's a statutory thing, but you've just got as a starting point, the law in the UK means much more comes under the CMA's review than it would anywhere else. That's fine, you know, if, if it's then going to be reviewed in a sort of proportionate way. But it is clear to us that the CMA over the last sort of 12 to 18 months has chosen to take an exceedingly aggressive stance on anything that looks like a tech merger. Um, I think they feel very burned by having approved Facebook, Instagram, and a few other deals where they didn't understand or see the platform power that would, would emerge, and, and, and they're now trying to make amends. But I think they're doing so in a hugely, hugely counterproductive way. Because what a decision like this says to investors, you know, VCs and others who are looking to put money in, is you better hope that the company you're investing in is able to succeed completely organically and get all the way to IPO uh, without ever having to engage in M&A activity. Because heaven forbid that you're in an industry where the company is successful, but consolidation would help drive success further, you're not going to be allowed to do it. And I, I, if I were uh, moving significant amounts of capital internationally, I was looking at different markets, I think that would concern me greatly. We do know that the British government, including very, the most senior, uh, you know, at the very senior levels, were quite concerned by and upset by this decision. We've seen a lot in the press about it as well. So I think that this does not bode well. I think fortunately for the UK, and I'm a big champion of the UK startup ecosystem, fortunately, these things don't have to be permanent in terms of not this specific decision, but in terms of, of approaches and attitudes. And I think that, you know, the CMA is about to get a new chair. I think their, their CEO is thankfully on his way out the door. And I think that, you know, under new leadership, perhaps a more sensible and moderated approach to these kinds of things and an approach that looks looks at cases more on their substance than on their image. And that's fundamentally, I should say, the problem we had here was that the CMA made up its mind about us at the very beginning and was unwilling to look at or spend any real amount of time considering the, the volumes of evidence that we provided them about what our market looked like. They saw that we were two tech businesses that sort of looked like we did the same thing, and that was enough for them. But that can change. You know, that doesn't have to be the way the CMA does things. And I'm, I'm very hopeful and optimistic that, there, that some sense will be, will be seen. Thank you for sharing. And uh, I guess final words, just to see us out for the end of the episode, JK, what is next for Cedars now? So with this sort of painful chapter 
behind you, other than obviously 10x growth, because are you even an American CEO if you don't say it? But what else? I think the um, one of the things which has, I guess, stood the test of time, if I think back to my first conversation with Jeff, is some of that thinking around building an investment platform ultimately to become, if you like, the largest marketplace for private company investing is unchanged or North Star is unchanged. The merger would have been an accelerant to that. So our direction and our purpose remains the same. But one of the really good things that has happened, if you like, over the course of the last couple of years, particularly I would say in the last 12 to 18 months, has been some of the bets that we placed in terms of really building out our capability beyond primary raises to bring a a more end-to-end investment experience for the investor, secondary market being one, supporting funds being another, is now beginning to pay off. So if you and I were speaking before the pandemic, you know, we had a, a relatively a small run rate on our secondary market over the last 12 months, we sort of increased by over five times. Since then, it's doubled again. You know, we've done over 25,000 investor exits. So that, you know, what we're now seeing is customers are engaging with it, using it. And so that's working. And we recently had Passion Capital, which now sort of to Jeff's example of marquee, kind of a marquee VC has now put its name to, you know, yes, this is something we want to do. And so these these longer term strategic bets are now beginning to pay off. So and what you will see from us, if you like, is I can now, uh, those investments which started in 2017, you know, which was, you know, a millennia ago in internet time, now are evidencing themselves in real utility. And so what you will see is, is that sort of end-to-end experience, primary, secondary, much more activity, which we hope that makes us much more useful to angels, to retail investors, to, to all, because it means that actually you can treat us as a platform where you don't have to necessarily wait for seven or 10 years for your uh, startup to exit. You can be part of the cycle. And if you're, you know, if you like taking that seed risk, then you go in early and then take your money out and then do it again. And so I think really what, what you'll see is the, the manifestation of that in the real world from us. Mm, love that. Guys, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Real pleasure. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I founded a business on my own. I kept 100% equity to the day I sold it. So I didn't have anyone to lean on. My dad's not in business. None of my friends are. I didn't have any mentors. I didn't understand any business groups. It was just me, myself, and I. So I learned a lot. It was so, so lonely in places. I'm not, there's no pity party here, but days were lonely. And it's, if you weren't, if you're not strong of mind, it, it could seriously, you know, do damage. Next week is a bootstrapping bonanza with the founder of MyProtein, the bootstrap business that made founder Oliver Cookson an exceptionally wealthy man with great life lessons we can all learn from. So tune in or you'll miss out. If you've enjoyed this episode and you don't want to miss out on more just like it, then please get your phone out and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And if you can think of someone who'd really benefit from what you've just heard, then why not share the episode with them so they can also learn something new today as well. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.